series on, on uh, Micah 6.8, looking at this issue of the unholy trinity of drug addiction, mental illness, and homelessness. Um, I don't know how many of you remember this picture I showed after our trip back from Switzerland uh, in August. Um, have I told you that I'm a grandpa? I did. I, yeah, I told you. Okay, yeah. Uh, so, um, and... Um, uh, we had just returned from our, our trip. We had a three-week time, and we went up and stayed in this Alps cabin in, uh, in uh, the, the, the heart of the Swiss Alps. And uh, you have to drive, you have to take this windy road that just goes, like it's just like turnpike, all the way up. It's got one lane. If you meet somebody, somebody has to back up for quite a long time until uh, you find this, what they call a lay-by, so you can pull in and let the other guy go by. And uh, it's very, very hard on your nerves, um, and uh, very good for your prayer life. And uh, so this particular Alps cabin has no power, uh, no running water, other than the kind you run with, that kind, running water. And, um, and, uh, and uh, so, so it's, um, it's all just kind of very, very rustic. And we stayed there for, with our grandkids and our daughter and our, our son-in-law for a, a week. And um, behind this uh, Alps cabin uh, is, a, is, is a mountain that's still, even though we were already pretty high, this mountain was, uh, how many know it was higher still? And uh, so uh, the last day we were there, Marcus said, let's go for a walk, Gordy. Yeah. And so we actually climbed the back of this and went right back up into this area here. And it was at that point, as you will remember, I very courageously said to Marcus, you know, um, I'm not enjoying this. <laughs> and uh, the reason was is that um, my excuse was is that, I, that you have these walking pools, right, that you, you go with. And I didn't think to have a little backpack to stick them in because there's a lot of... How many have heard of the three-point rule when you're, when you're up on these kind? There's a three-point rule where you have to have, yeah? You have to have one hand, one hand, and at least yeah. one foot down, okay? If you have two, two up, then you could be in trouble, right? And on the back of this mountain here, there was a lot of, um, there's a lot of loose rock. And uh, so every time I was with my, my, my walking poles, every time I would go to grab something, it would move. And it was a long way down kind of there, right? That was quite, like when you're up there and you're looking down, it, it's, it's a long way, right? And so on one side was this very steep shale, and on the other side was a pure cliff. That's, that's, what I was, that's what we were going up. And I said to Marcus, this is fun, but we told our wives and our grandchildren that we were going to be back. Yeah. <laughs> By noon. So there was two things, back, A, and, and by noon, B. Now, I, I, I believed that we would, we would have been able to do it, but um, the, the, uh, we, we could have done that, but we would have been late. And, and I wasn't enjoying it, so what we decided to do, scree skiing. And that's the only, I, first time in my life that I'd ever done this, right? And uh, scree skiing is when you, you're in all of the shale, and you have to just let yourself go. And you can't lean forward. Okay, Matt will tell you. Is Matt here? Matt will tell you you don't lean forward. 
They had to carry him off the mountain. Okay, now, I won't say anything more than that. They had to carry him off the mountain. His youth group <laughs> had to carry the youth leader off the mountain because he forgot you don't lean forward when you're scree skiing. But anyway, what you do is you get in this loose shale and Marcus said, let yourself go. I said, are you kidding me? He said, Dee did it. That's my daughter. I said, okay, you know, that was enough. So I, away I went. And what happens is it forms this natural ledge for you. And, and so every 20 feet or so, you stop. And then you, you, then you have to let yourself go again. And it keeps forming this natural ledge. And as long as you're, you're, leaning, you're not leaning forward too much, you're, it, it, it ends up being quite a bit of fun. But climbing this mountain can seem rather daunting. It can seem daunting to look at it. But what I learned was that I climbed it. The, the way that you climb these is one step at a time. And as we look at our text today, which is going to be, uh, it's going to look a bit like this mountain. It's going to look a little bit like, pretty daunting, this particular text from Isaiah chapter 58. And you're going to see this big elk in front of you. And what I'm going to do, and I've asked our, a couple guys to share their story today. And what I, what I want you to do is to remember that you climb a mountain. How do you climb a mountain? One step at a time, all right? And so what, and, and, and how, do you, how, do you, how do you keep climbing a mountain? One step at a time. It still was one step at a time when I was up on the ledge, right? And so keep that in mind, because sometimes this whole social justice thing can get overwhelming and a bit daunting. But if we remember it's one step at a time, uh, it, will, it will help us. So let's go to our text. Um, Isaiah wrote, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Now before I, I read the next slide, I want you to note that in the middle of all this talk about feeding the hungry and taking care of the homeless, it says, and take care of your own flesh and blood. There's something quite powerful about that because as you get embroiled in the issue of homelessness, mental illness, and drug addiction, uh, as we have over the last 20 years, you find out that they, they are us, right? So there's something about family and there's something about connection and there's something about relationship that is at the heart and the core of this issue. And, uh, but when you look at this, it can look like that elk. It can look a bit daunting until you begin to find, as you begin to take care of your own flesh and blood, as you begin to take care uh, of the one. Jesus, when he said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was, without, I was in need of shelter and you, you took me in. I was in prison and you visited me. And they said, Lord, when did we do that? And he said, insomuch as you have done it to these, the least of my brethren or sisters, one. One of these. The word one is there. It's the ones. It's the ones and the twos. It's not the whole mountain. It's the step. Then you've done it to me, he said. All right? So keep that in mind. I found that's been helpful for me. Now, um, the second part says, Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and He will say, Here am I. Now this, 
uh, I've called this message the unholy trinity. And the reason is, is because homelessness, mental illness, and drug addiction, I'm going to argue today, are integrately entwined. They're intertwined. You, you can't separate them. The, the trinity, of course, the, the, the holy trinity, is this uh, interdependent uh, three persons that make up the Godhead. There's this interdependence. But there's an unholy interdependence that happens with these three issues. And what I want to do today is argue a little bit. And I know there may be some pushback. I'm, I know that some of the issues that I talk about today are controversial in the church as well as outside the church. Some of the things that I'm going to uh, put forth as a solution to break the chains of injustice for drug addiction and mental illness in our society are, are not embraced by all parts of the body of Christ. And they may not be embraced by some of you today. And that's okay. Because I think it's something we have to interact on, we have to discuss. Uh, I certainly did not believe what I believe now 20 years ago. I have shifted because of my involvement with this issue in our city, as well as our own family members. We've had it in our own family. Uh, I've suffered mental illness. Other family members have suffered mental illness and drug addiction. As well as many of our family members here in our church who we journey with suffered from mental illness, drug addiction, and seasons of homelessness. Right? And so, how many know your ideology sometimes changes when you get to know somebody's story? The story changes everything. I'm hoping today that some of the stories that you hear will help to shape how you see this issue. So, I'm going to argue that these are very interconnected. I'm going to argue that, um, for example, homelessness... <coughs> that if it were not for the issue of drug addiction and mental illness, uh, we would hardly have a homeless, homelessness issue in our city. That these other two issues increase homelessness. But the reverse is also true, right? If we had better uh, setups for homes for people, we would more effectively deal with drug addiction and mental illness. So there, it, it, it's, it's a catch-22. You know, in, in some ways, I'll give a, ca a case history in a minute. When you, when you get a home, it's a huge step towards dealing with drug addiction and mental illness. So, so it's, it's, it's one of these catch-22 things that happens. Um, I want to tell you, uh, I want to give another example, uh, being a Remembrance Day weekend. By the way, I have a little green note sheet that you can follow on so you know where I'm going. I'm not totally lost. Um, and it might help orient you, especially if it's your first time and wonder, where in the world is this guy headed? Uh, it, it might help you a little bit. Uh, just raise your hand if you need one, and, and they can get one to you. Um, this is Remembrance Day weekend, a Remembrance Day homelessness fact. Who is making up an increasingly larger percentage of the homeless population in our country today? Veterans, that's right. It is getting epidemic, folks. This is really scary. I heard that the number could soon reach one quarter. I don't know if that's correct. I'll have to look into that. But there are literally hundreds of homeless across Canada today who are veterans of not the Second World War, but the recent Afghanistan Well, I'm going to ask, I was going, you answered my question before I asked it. What, <laughs> Ross? Okay, that's right. I was going to say why. Why? 
Post-traumatic stress disorder? I was listening to a veteran on CBC on, on Friday who was saying that even integrating back into civilian life... How many here have ever been in YWAM or some other DTS? How many know that sometimes integrating back into regular church life can be quite difficult? Well, it's the same with a veteran. When they're involved, it's so intense, it's so focused, you're just... You know, and then you get back into civilian life. He was saying the standards are way lower. There's just like this mishmash, and they're disoriented. So this one guy, you know what he did? He went out to Jordan River, not the one in Israel, but the one over by, by Victoria there, went out in the bush, and he lived there for like a year in the bush. He just couldn't handle society. He just put up a tarp and, and lived, lived on, on the land. So post-traumatic stress disorder is huge. It's, and of course, mental illness. And of course, mental illness contributes. Uh, there's a great website, I think it's called veterans.ca, that talks about um, how that a lot of them are now getting into alcohol and drugs, of course, to deal with their post-traumatic stress. So that's an example of how homelessness, mental illness, drug addiction all work together. Let me give you another example, another story. This story is Vancouver. It's a tale, really, of two cities, if you see it there on your notes. A tale of two cities. The first city is Vancouver. And in 1989, Vancouver, uh, in one year, had 20 overdose deaths, mostly heroin overdose. By 1991, that number had shot up to what? Does anybody know? Okay, it had been around 20 for, I don't know how, how long, 20 a year. In, in about two years, that number had shot up to 200 overdose deaths a year in Vancouver. And it has continued to be a horrendous problem, although it is being addressed, I think, quite effectively, much more effectively today. But that is an epidemic. If you had any other disease, think about this. If you had any other disease that was causing that number of deaths in the city, how many know you would have a major outcry? I mean, how many did SARS kill? How many did some of these other so-called pandemics kill compared to, to, to what, how many people die from drug addiction? So the relative amount of ambivalence and apathy tells me that there's an injustice that has to do with this issue. There is a court of injustice. There is a, a court of oppression and, and injustice with regards to drug addiction and homelessness that, that I believe that the body of Christ needs to be part of in, in addressing so, so Vancouver uh, uh, shot up to 200 deaths by overdoses by 1991. And so my neighbor, a fellow by the name of Donald McPherson, lives right around the corner from us, wrote a paper to, to the mayor. And his paper had to do with proposing that we do what another city in the world that had, had done with a similar problem. The city was Zurich. Switzerland. Now, Zurich also had, actually, they had a worse heroin addict problem than Vancouver. They had a worse heroin addict. Switzerland had a worse drug addiction problem, has a higher per capita of drug addiction, one of the highest in the world. And I think it's, it's, it's accessibility, it has to do with money, it has to do with the Swiss mindset. You know, everything's just kind of like this. And then, and then you've got your artistic Swiss that are going, where do I fit? You know, they're creative types. That, that's a theory I have, having spent a lot of time in Switzerland uh, and, and, and getting to know my son-in-law's family. And, and a number of them are very involved in this issue in Switzerland. 
And, uh, and so Switzerland was experiencing a similar problem. Now, the Swiss are quite pragmatic. And so the first thing they tried to do in the late 80s is they created what was called Needle Park. Needle Park was in the middle of Zurich, and it was, it was where they said, hey, uh, you want to do drugs? We're not going to have any drug laws that affect you in this kind of four-square block area. And Needle Park in Switzerland, in Zurich, became a hellhole. I mean, there was just deaths and, and violence and overdoses, and uh, it was just horrific. And uh, a few years later, I visited Needle Park, and this is it. Same place. Okay? Now, what had changed? Well, the Swiss are quite pragmatic, and they realized Needle Park wasn't working. So they decided to take 2,000 of the worst heroin addicts in Zurich. Now, uh, uh, they, they had, you know, detox, they tried treatment, they tried, treat, you know, uh, all kinds of rehab programs. And, and, and so the, the, the 2,000 of the most incorrigible ones, they, 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 uh, they gathered them together and they assigned each one of them a doctor. They also assigned them a home. They gave each one of them a flat. You know, it was nothing fancy, but it was just a, a nice, you know, there's nothing bad in Zurich. But, you know, it, it, it wasn't fancy, but just a basic flat uh, apartment that they could live in. And these doctors were given instructions to prescribe safe heroin to these heroin addicts. In other words, they said, Let, instead of treating this as a criminal issue, let's treat it as if it was a disease. Let's treat it as if these people were, for example, and no offense if you're, you're here and you're like that, but let's, let's treat it as, 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 as if it was... Um, you know, somebody else that needed a, a regular dosage, you know, like, like um, yeah, like insulin, right? So they, they, they decided to shift it from being a criminal issue to a health issue. And they decided to track these 2,000 addicts for two years. They followed them closely, monitored them. And this is kind of in the late 80s, early 90s that they did this. Over a period of two years, how many of those heroin addicts died of an overdose? Zero. Not one death. All right, that's enough to make me cry right there, and I have sometimes when I've read that. Because if you have a family member or a loved one or a friend that you watch on the border of life and death for days and months and weeks and years, and you see how a policy actually stops something that was causing an epidemic of 200 deaths a year. I'm not sure what the, the amount per year was in Zurich, but I'm sure the numbers were similar to Vancouver. And to see that number cut down. Um, the next thing that was noticeable is after two years, one-third of these heroin addicts had stopped using heroin. You say, well, how did that happen? Well, you've got to understand something about heroin addiction, is that when you, a, a lot of the addiction is the, is the fix, it's the, it's the excitement, it's the, it's, the, it's the, you know, robbing the person to get the money to, to get, get, the, get the fix. 
And so all of a sudden, all of that's taken away, and you go to a doctor's office, and you're just shooting a needle in your arm. And what happens is, according to Bud Osborne, a former heroin user here in Vancouver, he said that life takes over. He said, you just, you get bored. You go, what am I doing? And you just start working your way off. Just start, and, 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 and life takes over. One third of them just came off without anybody saying, you got to do this and you better get straight or wagging their finger at them. Another third, they, they were still taking the safe injection from the doctor, but they had gotten a job or they were going to school. And, and they, were, they, were, they were getting goals for their life. Another one-third, uh, even though they hadn't got a job necessarily or were going to school, they were now more in connection with social services, psychiatric services. They were able to go home on their birthdays or Christmas time and integrate with their families. And I have been to Switzerland, I don't know how many times, I've lost count. Kathleen's been counting. My bank account's keeping count. But I'll tell you, I have never, ever seen one incident of open drug use. Now, how many know Needle Park makes a downtown east side look like a picnic? Remember that what I showed you? It does. It, it, it makes a downtown east side look like a picnic. What, what was happening there? I have never seen open drug use in Switzerland. I think I smelled pot one day. Whoa! <laughs> Man, I feel better just walking home around here, right? <laughs> so so what, is, what does that tell us? The other thing that I need to tell you is that the crime rate dropped dramatically in, in Zurich. The crime rate just dropped rock bottom. Because, you see, if, if, you know who some of the greatest opponents are to this kind of drug policy? Organized crime. Talk to the gang leaders. Organized crime and a lot of evangelical Christians are in bed together. Seriously. On this one. Right? Because it, it's, it, there's a market. Uh, there's, there's one guy that called it the criminal industrial complex that's based on the criminalization of addiction. When you criminalize addiction... It creates this criminal industrial complex and it, it, there's so many vested interests. You got jobs for the, pris the prisons, jobs for the jailers, jobs for the this and that, the, law, the, uh, the, the lawyers, they'll eat that up. Right? You got a, you got a criminal industrial com complex with, in, with vested interests that makes it very, very difficult to unravel and to change policy. And so... Um, I was thinking, you know, am I, am, are, we, are we just kind of, are we missing something here? Is this, this was a few years ago as we were rethinking all this. And, and uh, my wife, uh, Kathleen, got a uh, uh, kind of a contract uh, opportunity with a, teaching English as a second language where you bring in professionals. This is not students that are wanting to learn English, but professionals who are already established in their careers in other parts of the world, and they want to come over and brush up on their English. So, you know, we had different people that were pretty, pretty wealthy, pretty much of means, and they would come and stay in our home. And, and uh, I found out that we had a lady booked to come for a week from Switzerland. And I thought, well, this is kind of cool. So, you know, I looked on the website, looked at her resume, and I went, uh, Kathleen, what does the uh, 
IRC stand for? And we had to look it up on Google, and it was the International Red Cross. And it said she's just about to take the job as the vice president of the International Red Cross in, in Geneva. And I thought, ooh. I said, ooh. Whoa. So, so uh, when a little bit more exploration, we found out that this lady, Christine Barely, was actually the former president of Switzerland. I mean, they have a coalition type government, so it's not quite the same as Canada, but she was kind of the leader of the main party in Switzerland at the time that they implement, implemented this policy. So I thought, well, this is interesting. I said, well, this will be fun. So we decided to. You know, I decided to ask her a lot of questions. And amazingly, I don't know how many of you remember, she came to church that Sunday. Uh, and she loved our church. She's kind of from a Swiss Reformed background, probably doesn't attend that often. But she, she, uh, she loved our church. And I don't know how many of you remember, but I interviewed her about this. And she testified before us as a congregation that when she was in power, they had tried this project down in Zurich and it was so effective, they've now implemented it in all of Switzerland and all of the major cities. And I've been to Bern and Luzerne and uh, all these major cities, and I've never seen open drug use. Now, some people, I know, what uh, pushback. Pushback would be, well, oh, they're pushing it under the carpet. Yeah. But that case study that I gave you, I think tells us otherwise. I think it tells us that, um, that there's, there's more going on than that. So, let's... Uh, my friend Donald McPherson uh, did the study of Zurich and he sent a, a paper to the government and, and in the city. Uh, Mayor Philip Owen was on at the time and you remember Philip Owen started as a real tough, he's a, he's a conservative Christian. That, well, I think he went to St. John Shaughnessy, I believe. I could be wrong, but I, I believe he comes from an evangelical uh, background. But he was really tough war on drugs kind of guy when he came into power. And... Uh, uh, something happened during his time here in, in, uh, in uh, power, and he totally shifted to this four pillars approach. And the four pillars, uh, he, he, he read Donald McPherson's paper, uh, was convinced by it, and they implemented it. So you can go to w, uh, uh, vancouver.ca uh, backslash, uh, or sorry, forward slash four pillars, and you will find this information there. It's a, it's a great point of information, but there's this policy does not work unless you have four pillars in place. Number one, prevention. And, and basically that's where you focus particularly on children and on the children that are at risk. Who are the greatest children at risk of drug addiction? Teenagers? Children, teenagers, yeah. Children, teenagers with mental illness, that's right. People who, there's often a connection uh, how many have ever heard the thing about, you know, drug addiction causes mental illness? How many have ever heard that? Yeah, I was raised on that. You know, drug, drug addict addiction wrecks your brain. Actually, the reverse is true. Usually what happens is that you, you, uh, you have some kind of predisposition towards depression or some kind of schizophrenia or some kind of mental illness, some kind of psychosis, and usually that makes you more susceptible to becoming a drug addict. Why in the world did so many of the U.S. veterans in the Vietnam War use heroin, and yet when they came back, only a tiny minority stayed on as addicts? It's an actual fact. Very few of all the users over there stayed on as addicts. It's because it's a certain disposition. It's a certain personality, a certain propensity, and, and they have found that there's almost a, an 80% diagnosed overlap between drug addiction and mental illness. 
So, so basically, prevention is, is looking at the kids and, and, and noticing ADHD, noticing depression, noticing psychosis. I wish we would have known this because we remember that when one of our children was in his preteens years, he was exhibiting signs of, of, of tra- traumatic stress in his life. And he'd seen his father, me, suffer a very traumatic nervous breakdown, psychotic breakdown. I went through two years of, of su- a suicidal, uh, total uh, psychotic break. And he saw that. And we, you know, we're, I'm trying to survive. We had no idea what was happening to him. So it's just training parents and teachers and caregivers uh, to, to notice those things among the kids and to watch for them. And uh, we, we went through stuff, but you know what? God, God taught us through that. We learned. I don't know if there's some things we would believe today if we hadn't been taught these things. The second is treatment. I think we all know that, that, that we need to have rehab. We need to have, there's lots of great treatment out there. Law enforcement, uh, where we take our law enforcement dollars and, and go after the high-level dealers. Not, not the low-level dealers. The low-level dealers are trying to survive. They're trying to feed their habit. So don't go after them, but go after the high-level dealers and, and in, uh, in law enforcement. The only problem is that for every dollar of treatment that Canada spends, we're spending at least $4 on law enforcement, and it's going higher now with the latest government policies. We're, we're spending too much on the law enforcement. We need to spend more on the treatment side, and we need to have... Uh, and we need to focus more on the high-level dealers, not the low-level dealers. And finally, what I've already mentioned is harm reduction. Now, I know there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, controversy around that. We have a program in our city called Insight. How many have heard of Insight? Let me tell you about Insight. Now, Insight's a bit of a half-baked policy because in Canada, you cannot prescribe uh, heroin. I think there was the Naomi Project for a while that they allowed us, but... But the Insight is a place where people can shoot up, but they can't get their drugs. They have to get their drugs still illegally, so it's really weird. It's, a, it's this weird concoction where they have to get their drug from a dealer. But they come to the Insight, and they have doctors and nurses and staff there, and they can shoot up with a safe needle. And um, how many overdoses was there at Insight? Anybody know in, the la- in uh, 2010? Hmm? 220, that's right. How many died? None. None, that's right. How many visits to, to Insight in 2010? Oh, Quarter of a million. 312,214 visits. 12,236 different people visited. But here's the thing. Uh... There, of those 12,000, there was 5,268 referrals to treatment, to detox. That's almost 50%. Of those individuals, almost 50% were referred to detox and treatment. Now, it doesn't mean they all, all made it or they all recovered then, but it tells you that it's... They're, they're, you know, one, one of the greatest protests that I... You know, uh, I hear from my friends on the other side of the Rockies, <clears throat> not mentioning any names or places, but what, one of the greatest protests that I hear is that somehow we are enabling drug addicts by doing this. Right? How many have heard that? Yeah. 
Yeah, we're just, yeah, if you build it, they will come. Yeah, all the drug addicts, at least they don't have to shoot up in Grand Prairie, Alberta. They'll come to Vancouver where it's a little warmer. Have fun with all the drug addicts. And I say, bring them, send them. Because they're not things or numbers or statistics. They're our brothers, they're our sisters, they're our family members, right? And, 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 and uh, I have to tell these people, I have never, ever, met a drug addict who wants to be a drug addict. Yeah. I've never met one. I have. Yeah. Many. Yeah, I haven't. I have never met a drug addict. They want to quit, but they can't. They can't. See, there's two, there's two reasons that people do drugs. Are you ready? Number one, they choose to. And that's where we as the church get stuck. But there's a second reason why they, choose, they, they use drugs. They can't choose not to. Now you read Romans 7, where Paul says, the things that I want to do, I don't. And the things I don't want to do, I do. And tell me if that isn't you, and if that isn't me, and if we don't have our own addictions if we don't have our own struggles. And the problem is we put them in a category and say, well, they're, they're a bunch of people that just, they don't, they, you know, they, 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 they just want to sin. They just want, what about you? What about me? What about my addictions? What about my workaholism? What about my idolatry? What about the things that I put as a substitute between me and God and intimacy with Him and with other people? I battle with those things every day. So drug addicts are just on this continuum of struggle. And, and I, I, I honestly, you know, and I, I, I think that what happens is that in my interviews with them is they get stuck in this trap of hopelessness and despair and they go kind of like, what's the use of trying? That's, that's kind of what my experience has been. It's just like, if there was a way out, I'd, I'd, I'd take it, but I don't, I don't know a way out. I don't know him. And I, and I know what it is to weep and struggle and pray with a loved one who has tried everything he can do to quit. And then you relapse and you relapse and you relapse. And I've talked to some of you in this church who you relapse and you say, I just think that I should just finish myself off. I'm so, I'm so tired of trying. I know. I know what that hopelessness is like. I haven't been a drug addict, but I know what that hopelessness is like. I know what it's like to feel like, what's the use of even trying? Right? Come on up, Don. This is Don. Give Don a hand. Don um, is involved right now with the Salvation Army uh, homeless, a number of homeless shelters in the city. He's a part of our church. Uh, he has his own story of drug addiction. Why don't you take this mic? I can use my, my uh, lapel. I'll just ask you a few questions, Don. First of all, how long... Uh, tell us, uh, uh, first of all, about your drug addiction. How long were you a drug addict? Uh, maybe start, tell us, first of all, how you got into it, how it started for you. Um, I first started using drugs in my... Uh, I guess my mid-teens um, took my first injection of powdered cocaine when I was about 18 years old. Um, and that sort of led me to a uh, life of addiction until I was, oh, 30-ish, 1983. Um, and uh, two of my friends 
and myself got saved. And uh, um, I guess actually what we had was we had revival um, uh, around a friend of mine's kitchen table. We saw probably 30 to 40 people get saved in a two- to three-month period, um, and those were our close friends' family um, and sort of various and assorted hangers-on. Um, and at that time, uh, my addiction just sort of dropped off me, um, which was kind of cool. Um, mind you, 11 years later, um, going through a period of stress, uh, I did relapse. Um, what was the drug done? Uh, the drug was powdered cocaine. That was my, that was my drug of choice uh, done by injection. Um, and that was a, a, a three, about a three-and-a-half-year relapse. Um, and I got really uh, serious about wanting to get clean uh, about the last year of that. Um, uh, Gordy said that one of the things about addiction is you can't stop, and I couldn't stop. Um, uh, and all I could think of to do Don can never tell this story without crying, and I, I totally understand. <laughs> and uh, all I could think of to do was uh, to rely on God's mercy and His grace um, and do anything that I could to get in His presence. Um, and uh, went to a couple of different churches at the time where uh, his um, presence was very powerful. Um, uh, began uh, going to visit friends of mine that I got saved with um, originally over on Vancouver Island and um, uh, uh, spend time by myself uh, in worship and uh, reading my Bible, um, praying. My prayers basically uh, were, uh, help God help, if you don't rescue me, I'm sunk. Uh, And he did. Um, I had friends as well that uh, uh, prayed for me and uh, and didn't give up, which I think um, if uh, you have friends or loved ones, that are trapped in addiction, pray and don't give up. Um, And if it looks like things are getting worse, uh, keep praying because it's working. Um, December the 6th on uh, 1999, I'd spent the night before uh, fixing coke all night. I, I had a horrendous coke hangover, slept for a couple of hours, woke up, and was sitting on the couch going kind of like, oh, God, how does this all end? And uh, uh, I heard God speak to my heart and uh, ask me a question. Uh, One thing I should say, the entire time that uh, um, I was seeking God and, and trying, you know, seeking to get set free, God kept 
saying, uh, just trust me. Uh, every time I pick up and read my Bible, um, one way or another, um, what I would read, God would be saying, just trust me. And uh, anyways, December the 6th, uh, sitting on the couch wondering how does all this end, uh, I heard God speak to my heart and say, how does it feel to be set free from drug addiction? And uh, I kind of laughed and said, well, not very good. I got this horrible cocaine hangover, but, uh, um, you know, uh, you've been telling me to trust you, and I do. And, uh, you know, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Um, uh, I sort of have my own little version of that, and that is faith comes when you hear a word from God. Um, And that was a word from God that worked in my life. Um, At that point, um, that craving that, um, that we call addiction uh, left, and it has never come back. Um, uh, you know, there has been there have been times of temptation, but uh, um, temptation isn't hard to deal with. Um, uh, you know, the Bible tells us how to deal with temptation. Um, you know, submit to God and resist the devil, and he'll flee, uh, or flee temptation. A lot of running going on there. Um, uh, we have the word of God, the name of Jesus, his blood, um, uh, praise and worship. Uh, we have lots of tools to deal with temptation. Uh, it was the addiction part that I couldn't deal with. Yeah. So, Don, um, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you another question in a minute. I'm going to ask Gordy to come up. Okay. Because you're also involved with homelessness, and I, I just want to talk about the interplay of that, because you've seen it, maybe not so much in your own life, the connection, but certainly in your work now, yeah. you're seeing that. So I want to, come on up, Gordy. This is Gordy Gibosh, our chili wagon man. And I've asked, I've asked Gordy to share, because he obviously has a heart for the poor and, and the, the homeless and, and the people on the margins in our city, and a lot of that is, you know, people that have been there. Uh, that tends to affect you. So, Gordy, uh, you ended up on the streets. You were you were homeless. Tell us how that happened. Um, I grew up in foster care in Calgary, and I had one foster family for six years, and my mother died of a heart attack. And then I went back into foster care, and in the next five years, I went through 30 different foster families. A lot of them were very abusive, um, horrible places to be, a lot of beatings, a lot of just really horrible, horrible stuff. Um, <clears throat> post-traumatic stress disorder, that comes out of stuff like that. Um, I ran away from a lot of those places because they weren't safe. Uh, I was safer on the streets. I slept underneath the stairs of the Bay Parkade in Calgary. Uh, garbage dumpsters would stay out of the cold. Um, refrigerator boxes. Um, I found trailers that people left unlocked in the back of their yards that I used to crawl into and sleep and then disappear in the morning so that nobody would know what I was there. You know, um, <clears throat> I spent a lot of time, I spent more time on the streets than I did in, in a lot of those foster homes because, I mean, I mean, I had, I had three foster homes in one week, you know. I mean, that's how, you know, how bad it was. My social worker really didn't give a rat's ass about what was, what was going on or my complaints or, you know, 
I was stuck to do with, you know, where I was. And my, my option for my safety was to take off. And sometimes that wasn't the best place for me to be. Um, some horrible things happened when, to me when I was, when I was on, the, on the run. And, you know, but I, you know, I'd rather be, I'd rather be on my own living in the winter in Calgary, freezing my butt off and not being hurt than being, you know. And that's another real, I think, a, a big segment. I think we see them represented at the Chili Wagon is, is youth that are, that it's more painful for them to be at home than to be on the street. There, 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 there is a lot of that. We do have a lot of youth. Um, there, <laughs> we do have a lot of youth that uh, are homeless because they want to be, because they don't, again, they don't want to be where they're at because of things that are going on in their, in their house um, that they consider to be unsafe. So, Gordy, and Don, I'll get you to prepare something for this, too. Uh, I didn't give you a lot of time to think about this, but what, what would be a takeaway, because we're, we, you know, that whole thing of the mountain that we see, you know, and just the, the steps, what, to you, being where you were, going through what you went through, here we are, who we are. Uh, what, what, are what are the little, little things that really mattered, the steps that, that are accessible for us uh, that, that you would see really making a difference for where you were? And, and obviously, I mean, you... <laughs> we, did, we, we didn't have, we didn't have uh, a lot of the options that are available today mm when I was a kid. We didn't have the kids' help phone or any of those things. I mean, th- those are great places, you know. Uh, we didn't have youth centers like, th- like that there are downtown. Habitat, uh, you know, all, th- all these places, that, you know, there's a lot more opportunities now. What we need is we need to have, we need to have more resources. We need, we need to have people that are willing to, to listen and to, and, to, and to do something. Um, you know, when I'm talking to people... Down at Chili Wagon, you know, if I can put them in con- into contact with different resources or, you know, I mean, we take them into our houses if we have to. I mean, we've done that. You know, my wife and I have <laughs> lived in communities since we've been married. You know, we <clears throat> open your doors. Take, take somebody and love them. I became a Christian because someone came up to me and told me that Jesus loved me. I didn't have an addiction story like 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 Don. like like Don I had enough issues going on in my life I didn't have to have drugs to screw it up but I had someone come up and tell me that Jesus loved me and that he died on the cross for my sins and let me tell you something growing up in foster care growing up in group homes and institutions mm-hmm. you didn't have people tell you that you that you were loved yeah. and that was really life changing for me mm-hmm. okay that, that, that's why I became a Christian because someone he took the time to tell me that God loved me. Yeah. Thank you, Gordy. You know, uh, oh, I mentioned at the beginning just the, the ones and the twos, and you guys have modeled that. You know, you, you haven't taken care of the whole city, no. but you've taken care of those significant ones, those ones and those twos, mm-hmm. and you've modeled that. So, thank you. Dawn. <clears throat> What's. Maybe, maybe you could also just, based on, on not only what you went through, but what you've seen now working in the shelters, what, what is the takeaway that you would give us today? Gordy's talked about 
you know, we, we, what's the next step doing what we can do, the ones and the twos? What, what do you see? What's the challenge of the Holy Spirit to us? Uh, you know, we heard on Thursday about, it's not about social justice, it's about obedience. It's about hearing the voice of God and, and doing what, the next step. What, what could some of those look like? We're not prescribing, because we're all, you know, in different places in our life, different abilities, what we can do, but... But what are some examples, or what do you see as steps that we could take? Um, I think the main thing would be um, be involved. Um, you know, there's uh, uh, a lot of herm- homeless, hurting uh, people just within blocks of here. Um, and I know some of, the, some of you have been. Uh, go to the chili wagon. Be involved with some of with with um, some of them, whatever that might look like for you. Um, it might not be taking somebody into your house. It might just be uh, spending twenty minutes with them in conversation, so showing that someone cares. Um, and uh, have to echo what Gordy said. It's not about the masses. It's yeah. about the ones and the twos. Um, Thanks, guys. Appreciate that. Let's give them a good hand. I, I, think, I think it would be really important to remember that uh, Don and Gordy would come in and out of churches, and uh, in, in, in they, they, they hadn't arrived yet. Don was still shooting cocaine in his, in his veins before he walked into a worship service. Uh, last Sunday, I didn't realize this, but you know, uh, you know, Robbie, Bobby was 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 you know, you could sense a bit of a restlessness on him, and I don't know if you guys realize this, but the 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 girl, Don Marie Wesley, was his niece that I talked about last Sunday. I didn't know that uh, when I was talking about her from, about this bully side, and so often we don't know what's going on inside of somebody, and so I, I always want us to be a community that sees beyond the surface. This is, you know, that person's, you know, they're making a little bit of noise or they're, you know, it's, it's, it's being a community that sees beyond that. And, and I think you've done that. I, I see that very much on us as a church. Uh, we're not about trying to be neat and tidy. I mean, I believe in order and, and organization. I think it's loving to be. But, 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 we're, but the, we sometimes color over the lines because we recognize that we live in a messy world. And God loved us so much that he was willing to leave his clean and tidy place to embrace us in, in our mess. And uh, that's, our, that's the heart for us to be uh, as a congregation. Is there any one or two questions that you have that just is, is just burning to be answered out of anything you've heard, any pushback to what you've heard? Uh, I'd love to hear it just right now. We don't have a lot of time left because I want to let our kids' workers go, but... Uh, quickly. Uh, not a question, but I like to speak. I've been, I'm on stress leave right now because of work issues, but that's not what I'm talking about. Come on up here, Kenny. Yeah. I want to let you guys know something, what I've been doing for the last three weeks. I don't even like I'm on stress We're leave recording. from VGH. We're yes. recording. Huh? We're recording. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on stress leave from Vancouver General. I work at Vancouver General. And because I'm on stress leave, I've been waiting for my EI. I live in an RV, sold my condo. All my money's tied up in lockout because I don't want to spend it foolishly. Mm. So my RV ran out of propane. So you know what it's been like outside lately. You can't stay in my RV. 
So I decided to stay at the Union Gospel Mission, which I'll go down and do volunteer clothes, food. And of course, as I walk in there, as everybody says, as I walk in here, oh, you look, got a nice shirt, got nice pants, got nice clothes. You know, you walk in the Union Gospel Mission, and they see me walking there, and why are you here? <laughs> but just to let you know, and uh, it's all got to do with the Lord, let me tell you. These guys walk in, and I see these cocaine addicts and three alcoholics. And they look at me and talk to me, and they say, you know what, I want to get off the, off, off, off the booze and the heroin. But I can't, because I've gone to rehab, and all I do is end up going back onto the, on the thing. I says, number one, listen to these people. And the problem that I find out down there is with these people hanging around with them for the last three weeks. They get off this, and where do they go? Back to the same people. The same pipe on the street, mm -hmm. the same alcohol, mm -hmm. just change that reaction and ends up making them do it all over again. Mm -hmm. So I told three guys, alcoholics, well, I didn't ask them, I talked to them. And uh, one heroin addiction guy, I says, you know what? Go to the Union Gospel, tell me you want rehab. And when you go through the rehab, go see your social services or your worker and ask your worker, relocate me. Relocate. Mm -hmm. We know New West, we know Surrey, we know everywhere it is. Mm -hmm but relocate me to a place that I am not used to where my friends are that use because as soon as you run across those people, you're gonna reuse again. And they say, you're right. And I didn't think about this until I was down there and I'm talking to these guys. Yeah. It's relocation, relocation. Even though it's around, get in a suburb and a room somewhere else, social service to get a job. These three people, four people, are in rehab right now. Wow, cool. Awesome. And, and it's, it's like, and, and now the, the, and it's just starting for me. These people are in rehab. And now I got more people coming to me, starting to talk to me about this. Like these people you see in Peking, if you know what it means. Um, and they're wondering like, you know, this guy's in rehab. What did he say? Well, I didn't really say anything. I'm just trying to guide you on the right direction. So I just want to let you know that's, that, that's the picture, instead of just throwing them back out on that yeah. downtown skid row, right? Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, and that's been our story too. Yeah, yeah we've had a similar story. Yeah, thanks, Ken. All right. Yes, question. Yeah, so the question for the microphone is, is, is how do we handle the fear-mongering, scare-mongering that we're enabling addiction that comes a lot from evangelical Christians. I think there's a lot of that, particularly from the evangelical world still. I think it's changing, but uh, in answer to your question, for me personally, it's just telling our story. I find that I, I met a pastor at the airport um, a number of years ago. Kathleen and I were just going off to Switzerland, surprisingly enough. And uh, we met this fellow at the airport, and he started just going after the bleeding heart liberals and how we're enabling drug addicts by, by decriminalizing uh, you know, the drug laws and that, that kind of thing. I said, well, let me tell you my story. And I took 20 minutes. We didn't have a lot of time. I told him my story. At the end of 20 minutes, this guy, he's a pastor of a large church out in the Tri-Cities area. He was going, oh, oh. Well, I've never heard it that way before. Whoa. And, and, you, and I think it's realizing we all want the same thing. 
You know, we all want to see people free from drugs. We all want to see people come off drugs. But we realize that the way to get there is sometimes different. You know, we, all, we often have this cookie-cutter approach where everybody's got to go the same way. And so we hear some great testimony from Teen Challenge where it worked, you know, this boot camp approach worked for one guy, and we think it's got to be the same for everybody. And so, you know, what Kenny was talking about was relationship, you know, staying in relationship. And Don was talking about don't give up. You don't give up on people even if they relapse 300 times. You don't, how much do I forgive my brother? 70 times 7. You know, you just, you know, our son after a year of, of, of being clean and, in Bible school, you know, relapsed just on his way to Calgary, just stopping in the, and, and, he, and he was free to tell us. And it was so freeing that he, 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 could, he was free to tell us, you know, that he didn't have to hide it anymore. And shame and so much of these things are, are what, what, what keeps people in their prison. And I feel that if the church would just become more open about this, like what if, what if Don would have been in a church that said, you still using drugs? Yeah. You have no right to come in here and worship. Right? But, but, but allow people to come in their brokenness into the presence of God. And, and, and that, you know, it might take six months. It might take a year. But, you know, it, it, you just keep going. You never, 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 never give up. Never give up. So, uh, story for me, uh, uh, Jennifer, has been the, the most effective way. One more. Yes. Gordy. I love what you said. It's, it's just so powerful because uh, just, uh, just my commentary on that is that I work in, in the downtown east side and, and uh, we, a lot of us operate uh, under the umbrella of harm reduction. Yeah. And so I've seen a lot of, I've seen abuse of it, but I've also seen a lot of success right. of it. And um, I believe, and it really hit me when Gordy uh, spoke this out, that combination of harm reduction and evangelical Christianity mm -hmm. to say Jesus yeah. loves you while well, you're giving that person yeah. uh, resources, nutrition, or whatever, is powerful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and I I would say that you know a person can be clean but not sober. You know what I mean? They they use that term I think in AA where you can be uh, you know off your alcohol. <laughs> But all you've done is you've transferred your addiction to something else, right? And so that's where Jesus comes in, is Jesus frees us from our addictions so that we're not living a life in, on de in dependencies. We, that's, that's a word we use for addiction because we can control it and it can make us feel better just like that. Well, Jesus will not be your dependency, but he'll be dependable. He won't fit your agenda. You can't control him, but he is you follow him is the one who weans us off our addictions. And sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes there's withdrawal. How many know the children of Israel coming out of Egypt? We're going through withdrawal from Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt, right? There's that longing that we have for our addictions. And, and uh, so, so the, the, the life of following Jesus, I believe, is the, the core answer to this. Um, but there's also the importance for just laws and just policies that can, can, uh, can reduce the number of dying that's, that's happening. So let's... Can you just... Yeah. Uh, don't you think that mental illness really is a skeleton in the closet? Like mental illness, you, people like Claire Hughes, who's an Olympian, 
she's now coming out and speaking about her own mental yeah. illness. And she's an Olympian athlete. And we, you know, I think we need to unpack it and talk openly. There's a continuum. Yeah. And so we tend to think mentally ill as being freaks. And, it's, you know, many of us are on a continuum. It depends on stress. Yeah, I think one of the problems I noticed that when I uh, set the title for today, I realized this is a month series. <laughs> it's a big one, you know, and, and, and we didn't, we've only been able to scratch the surface with mental illness. That's my story, um, along with many others here. Um, this, this church is pastored by a psychotic. Um, so there you go. <laughs> Pastor Psycho, huh? Uh, but, uh, but, but in, in seriously, uh, seriously, um, you know, uh, when November hit, I've, I mean, I'm, I walk with a limp. I, I, I came off medication in 1995, but I still walk with a limp. But when November hit and the rains came, it's been a hard couple of weeks for me. It's been really hard. You know, it's just, uh, so I'll always have that. You know, I'll have to... And part of, for me, is just being able to step away from it and be a bit objective and say, okay, that's sad. That's happening. I'm not the Antichrist's brother. Um, that's just sad. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, you know, all those thoughts are so powerful, aren't they? And uh, so if you're here today and you want prayer for that, you know, like the, the, there's the lack of light, if there's been depression, you know, there is comfort. The Holy Spirit is here. And He... He wants to comfort. If you're still struggling with addiction, whether sexual or chemical or others, uh, there, is, there is grace here today. And um, that's what the body of Christ is for. And I think it's important just to have this conversation. And there, you know, there is pushback on this stuff. It's not all black and white. And there's, okay, maybe we've worked out the harm reduction that works pretty good for heroin, but what about crystal meth and coke? And, you know, like, how, what does that look like, right? And, and these are, there's not black and white answers. It's just, I think that the, the core of it is, is we have to start treating it more as a health issue than a moral issue. There are moral issues involved. I'm not saying bad choices aren't involved. How many of you have ever made a bad choice? We've all made bad choices, right? So there is sin, and we need to come to the cross, and there is redemption. But... But to, to journey together in community is, is just so critical. So you've, you've been gracious to give us some extra time. Why don't we, we wrap it up? Why don't we stand together? And um, I'll, uh, I'll bless you to those of you that need to go sign your kids out. Release them, free them, let them go uh, from their class. And uh, let, me, let me pray over you. If you, if you do need... Um, prayer, again, for, for issues that came up today, or maybe healing, if you need prayer for healing, um, come for prayer. Um, Paul, I'd like to have a chat with you, if you could, if you could come forward, I'd like to pray and talk with you a little bit. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace, for your kingdom. Lord, uh, thank you for these stories, for Gordy and for, for Don and for Kenny and for Aldona and... and uh, and Jennifer, just amazing stories, both in, in the journey you've taken them through, but also in the work that they're doing. We thank you, and there's Gordy and Shannon and, and the work that they're just, uh, so many in our church, Lord, that, that it almost feels like we're preaching to the choir when we talk about this stuff. And, and yet, Lord, we don't want to get apathetic, we don't want to get hard, 
I just pray that if some of us could just give a little bit more of our, our time, maybe, or not give more time, but maybe reorganize our time. Uh, we don't have any more time, but Lord, just to re, re, uh, reshuffle so that uh, we could just be present, Lord, to the homeless, to the poor, to the marginalized, to the drug addict, just to hear their story. Not just because they need us, but because we need them. Lord, we need, we, we, we need to see your face in them. Lord, we need to learn from them. Thank you for what you've taught me through some of the most vulnerable and broken in our city. Help us, Lord. Help us to remember that as much as we've done to the least of these, we've done it to you. That these are our family. They are us. And so with that in mind, may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the communion and power of the Holy Spirit be with you all and empower you to live a spirit-filled, Jesus-centered life that as you walk through this week, you will do what the Father is doing. You will say what the Father is saying, that you will be the Father to a fatherless, familyless culture, generation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everyone. God bless you. Have a blessed week.